Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Buck Haberichter, the managing editor of War Room. In episode one, our panel began the discussion of the importance of the Tet Offensive in the United States' final years in Vietnam. Our editor-in-chief, Jacqueline Witt, was joined by three scholars of the Vietnam War. First, Hang Nguyen is the Dorothy Borg Associate Professor in the History of the United States and East Asia at Columbia University. She specializes in the Vietnam War, U.S.-Southeast Asian relations, and the Global Cold War. She's the author of Hanoi's War, and she is currently working on a comprehensive history of the Tet Offensive. Next, Robert Brigham is the Shirley Ecker Bosky Professor of History and International Relations at Vassar College. He's the author of numerous publications on American foreign relations. And finally, Gregory Dattis is a retired U.S. Army colonel and a professor of history and the director of the Master of Arts program in War and Society at Chapman University. He is the author of three books on the Vietnam War. The previous episode ended with Jackie remarking on the incredible task of sorting through the massive amounts of historical information about this period, much of it coming to light only recently. And now we'll join the panel discussion already in progress. Not feeling terribly optimistic <laughs> um, about, our, about our ability to, to do this work. So what are the strategic level questions that we still um, need to really get after that historians need to put some energy to well I think I think one uh, is is the the overarching diplomatic and political strategy in all three capitals I mean that's what we do and uh, hang and I focus on primarily but we have a lot more to a lot more to say um, there are things that there's still great deal of argument about. And, and another thing that, that I found in, in writing my last couple of, of projects is that these are policymakers who are also humans. And in conversation on Tuesday, I mean, Lyndon Johnson was famous for this, right? On conversation on Tuesday, they're dead set against policy A. And on conversation on Thursday, they embrace policy A. And so you've got to go through that kind of mm-hmm. work as well. We don't have as I said earlier, we don't have really solid answers to some pretty simple questions. Um, so I feel like we're just starting, even though we've been at this for a, quite a while. For a while. I would love for more people to work on the Tet Offensive. I say that even though there have been so many great recent <laughs> books on the Tet Offensive, but because I'm, I'm mired in that right now, trying to write my, my book, which um, hopefully will be a comprehensive history of, of the battles that took place, um, not just around the... the the Tet period, but throughout 1968, and I'm just coming up against so many unanswered questions on all sides, um, and it's infuriating mainly because that's that's probably the most. I mean, if you just kind of pitch it to a general audience, what is the most uh, you know famous event of right. that war? They'll say the that's going to be the one everybody knows. I know, but why is it that we don't know about <laughs> the one that everyone knows the most about? Um, and so I find myself just you know kind of stumbling over the um, the obvious questions: Why did leaders in Hanoi launch? Um, um, the Tet Offensive, and in the manner that they did, why did they adopt the strategy they did? Mm-hmm. What happened in its implementation? Um, you know, on the the South Vietnamese side, um, you know, what what impact did it have on the decision making in Saigon? What was the relationship between President Wing Bang Thieu and Vice President Wing Kao Ki as a result of the um, counter operations during the sweeping up campaigns after Mini Tet? And then finally, you know, uh, what was going on in Washington D.C.? Uh, you know. It, 
the question there, of course, is, you know, is this an earlier instance of uh, foreign collusion um, during a pivotal American election? And so, you know, we don't have these answers, but we, we really need to start putting something forward. I mean, we owe it to, to students, to scholars, to um, historians of, of that war. I'm going to be joining the Tet Offensive fray here in a moment. <laughs> um, I, I, I guess I'll just go ahead with this. I've recently discovered um, that my biological father was a Marine combat photographer at Way the first week in February with Alpha 1-1. And uh, to get to some of the major themes we're already talking about this morning, I have his photographs. His photographs have been published in a, almost every book that deals at the tactical level um, with the Tet Offensive. And they all have different dates on them for the, for the photographs. They all are identifying different buildings, different people. So each scholar has this photo being a different building. Wow. Different. So we're still at that level. I mean, and these are these photos are published everywhere. So it's this is what we're up against. So again, back to the idea that we we still don't know exactly what what has happened. We don't. We have too many documents in some cases, not enough documents, perhaps. Like that, the, the your example of not supporting a policy on Monday and supporting it by Thursday, if there's no way inside inside Lyndon right. Johnson's head, which I'm not sure is a place many of us actually right. want to visit, um, you know what what happened in those in those intervening 72 hours? What conversations off the record? Uh, like, did something come to him in a dream? And did Lady Bird say something? Like, and then knows? you throw over the top of that this notion that the scholarship on the war is an extension of the ideological debates about right. the war. Mm -hmm. You throw all of that together right. and the politicalization of the writing and the yeah. response to, to scholars. And you add on top of that the fact that for a while, while the United States was engaged in Iraq fully, that it was hard to talk about Vietnam without echoes right. of Iraq, without feeling like you're somehow making a statement, political or otherwise, about Iraq about the surge, about strategy there. I think I think the Iraq War might have set Vietnam War scholarship back. Well, I think it certainly is, has muddied the waters from an oral history standpoint, right? Especially for um, you know, trying to interview U.S. soldiers today who have um, you know, fought in the war and then lived through Iraq and Afghanistan that I think Iraq and Afghanistan have kind of muddied the oral history mm -hmm. piece of it too because they're I'm not sure how reliable that memory is of Vietnam because it's been tainted by. Um, yeah, not only do we know how Vietnam turned out, we also now know we I, we don't know how Iraq and Afghanistan are turning out, but we're having we have some ideas about what those what those wars might mean. Um, for our listeners at War Room, which are both interested in his in historical topics, but also interested in sort of contemporary questions. What are some of the, the things that, that looking at Vietnam between 1968 and 1973 um, might prompt us to think about when we think about war termination and the, the end to long, drawn-out, complicated wars? I think for me, and it, it's a, um, it, it also goes back to your earlier question about what do we still need to work on, and, and to me it's a relationship with local local governments that I think one of the to me the, the the biggest gap right now in in the scholarship is is we don't really have anything on the two government there's been more recent work on ZM um, which has kind of moved him out of just being a caricature into something that is much more complex and but I don't think we have that for the two government um, and so I think the challenge is uh, for 
the perspective that Vietnam can give you, especially in the withdrawal years, is um, is how to turn over a complicated war back to a local ally that you may not have had all that much confidence in to mm-hmm. begin with. Um, and I, I don't think we ever solved that problem in Vietnam that um, even up to the very end, American policymakers and military leaders saw the Saigon regime as, as not all that dependable. Um, and I think that's a challenge for us uh, today, right? That we're, um, we're still struggling to leave Afghanistan in large part because we don't see them as a dependable ally after we leave. Um, and so if you can't declare victory, um, how do you turn it over to somebody that you're not comfortable turning it over to? I think the last years of Vietnam um, cast long shadows over us today. And among those shadows, one of the longest is that the United States has very little experience negotiating a sustainable peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Second World War, because of the conditions under which Roosevelt fought it, you had two vanquished countries, two vanquished states that you did nation building in afterward and you set up political structures. But the United States uh, has not, in our, in our experience in the last you know, 60 or 70 years, had to face the kind of things that we faced in Vietnam or in Iraq and Afghanistan where you have to do and best practices in building peace. And you have to bring in lots of different specialties and you have to build agreements that have enforcement mechanisms in them and you have to write new constitutions that empower themselves to have a political process lay out before you. We aren't very good at that. Our approach to negotiations, in a sense, has been a business school approach. How do you get to yes? Um, And you can couple that with military action very easily. But if you look at the U.S. Institute for Peace and University of Ulster and other places where they really look at what goes into negotiations, we're not very good at it. And I think our problems start in Vietnam where we really don't negotiate in a way that gets us to achieve our geopolitical goals without surrendering enormous prestige and power. And I, I'll agree to that. I, I One of the, um, the problems with the uh, post-68 war um, is that you know with the emergence of the diplomatic struggle, um, it really sort of marginalized other potential players in this war, especially in the Vietnamese sides, and it became, of course, since you know by virtue of a of a of a diplomatic um, sphere of the war, you're only going to have statesmen be involved, uh, heads of states be involved, um, and so in this sort of type of battlefield, uh, what tends to happen then is, of course, um, you know, there's it's just power concentrated at the very top, uh, negotiators in Washington, in Hanoi, uh, Leso in Saigon are duking it out, and then you have these third party um, players like the Soviet Union um, and China. But what doesn't happen is sort of the mid-level. In Vietnam, for a brief moment of time in both North and South Vietnam, they could have exerted much more um, mm-hmm. influence on the, the way the war was running uh, in, both, in both countries after 1968. But if you're never going to be able to be at that table, uh, which was the diplomatic battlefield, then, then all is lost. And so I think in many ways the emergence of this, you know, the diplomatic um, battlefield meant that the political and the military became less important, meant that whatever the men and women on the ground, whatever they were doing would have less of an influence and right now would go back to the governments and to the heads of states and even to countries that weren't directly involved uh, in the war that they would have probably a bigger say in the, the political compromise that would come out um, at the negotiating table. So um, that's one of the sort of, I would say, lessons um, of that war. And then the other one, of course, is that, you know, short of, of um, 
total victory. Uh, the United States needed to have a government in place in Hanoi to be able to negotiate it with. Um, that that was number one, a, a big issue. Number two, if the Republic of Vietnam was to have a stronger voice, why were they not at the table? And so all of this gets to sort of muddy aims um, and then also just a very, very um, unfair sort of uh, process in place um, with the diplomatic sphere. Well, I think with the, when, with the ascendancy, the di diplomatic sphere, I think, also helps us explain the decline in morale, I think, in the post-Tet years, right? That I, I think soldiers understand that that their actions are, are not as important anymore. And, and I think very soon after the Tet Offensive, you start to see soldiers on the ground questioning whether their sacrifices are mm -hmm. worth it anymore. So I, th I think that's part of it, too. And I think if you, they you, know the, the, the political negotiations to, to get out are sort of under underway right or whether you know military pressure is no longer yeah. and that it's disaggregated from what's happening right, on the ground right, right, which right. makes it different from korea right the sort of fighting while negotiating yeah and even then happening. you see uh you know the, the, these kind of patrol wars that are happening in the aftermath of uh or you know as we're leading up to the the, the armistice in in korea i mean the, the morale drops among u.s soldiers as well so i think that's part of the problem too that we're we're seeing um, even more recently, right? There's just a, a lot of frustration among U.S. soldiers that are deploying over and over and over again and, for, and not seeing for any... What, for what purpose? Right, right. Yeah. Bob? Yeah, I, I think Hang makes a really important point here, and I think this is one area where the new scholarship is very exciting, and that is the idea of South Vietnam, that there's a lot of cultural production going on in South Vietnam that we haven't uh, really paid much attention to, and young scholars are starting to really look at that now. And uh, so you, you end up not with the old you know, George Cahan formulation of a third force. But, you know, you have, you have people who were uh, anti-communist and still thought the government in Saigon was oppressive. And, and what, how did they enact in civil society? And what were their lives like? And was there any potential there to have a different political um, identity in yeah. South Vietnam? The struggle for what, what South Vietnamese meant. To me, that's where a lot of really interesting work, and it's happening in fiction, it's happening in history, it's happening in political right. science. Um, so I agree totally with what Hang's saying there about there's this moment that gets lost, um, and it, it had some possibility. So this, this brings us back to one of the points that we started with early on, which is that of contingency, that, that things could have gone different ways, that there wasn't a f one foreordained uh, story that was going to be told between 1968 and 1973 or 1975 later on. Um, so if we can take maybe a few minutes to be maybe more speculative, what are some, what are some of those contingent moments that you see where things maybe could have gone a different, a different way? Well, I think um, I think Mel Laird and Nixon were on to something in 1969 that this notion that if you withdrew American troops in a process that Laird named Vietnamization, that you could quiet domestic critics enough to get just enough congressional support to try to play the long game in Saigon, to give Saigon a reasonable chance to survive. I think Cambodia undoes that because it speeds mm -hmm. the clock up again. The, the whole idea through Vietnamization is to slow the clock down. I think Cam, you know, Cambodia undoes that. But, but after the silent majority speech, November 3rd, 1969, it seemed as if, at least on the domestic political front, uh, the Nixon administration accomplished some of its goals. What if, and here's the what if, right? The historians really don't like to do, but what if <laughs> there was a, a parallel project in South Vietnam to democratize at the same exact time? 
I mean, the, the 71 election also dooms this um, completely in a way. So what if there was something that did take advantage of that civil society? What if there was a broader program? I mean, it's a big what if, a sure. huge what if. But these, to me, there are avenues that weren't explored. It may not have affected the outcome at all, but it might have been more honest. I'll be, I'll, I'll jump on that and be more specific in that. And, and the period I look at is, is 1967. So my first would be if Le Yung, uh, the general secretary um, of the Vietnamese Workers Party in Hanoi, didn't win the day with his strategy in 1967, mm -hmm. and they did not adopt a general offensive, general uprising strategy, I think that would have made the Tet Offensive look a lot more different. The second is um, if. Nguyen Gauke didn't concede to being vice president on the, mm. uh, the on the ticket in 1967, and they still sort of duked it out between uh, Guy and between Thieu, um, thereby weakening his hand as they got into 1968. I think the war would have looked um, differently in Saigon. The third is if Humphrey won by the slight margin mm. that Nixon right. did. Uh, now, I would say all three of these, I think, together uh, would actually have changed the nature of the post-Tet Offensive War, uh, but it, it almost needed all mm -hmm. three. So those are sort of the political play in each of the three sort of capitals is, is clearly important as we think about who is in power, who's in charge, and who's who's calling the shots yeah. and what they're what I they're think doing. what it would have done is a, a, a a peace, a diplomatic compromise, not a sustainable one, uh, would have probably come earlier, which would have given a respite to the forces on the ground. I think no matter what war would have resumed anyway, but this would have meant that possibly a negotiation could have come, maybe not in 69, because Humphrey probably wouldn't have been able to sort of ram that through. But if you had those who were interested in uh, coming to a diplomatic settlement in Hanoi, and then a power struggle between two people in Saigon, so they couldn't be focused on what the Americans were doing mm -hmm. regarding um, a peace settlement and then a president in Washington DC wanting to really end the war then I, th I think maybe 1970 and then that would have looked very differently sure I think to me the, the biggest what if is what if Nixon didn't just come in and, and called it Johnson's war and, and decided to to immediately move into um, immediately start to the withdrawal process and and say this was not my war I campaigned to to end the war I am ending the war uh, and lay out his larger vision for re restructuring the Cold War and um, and basically bite the bullet early from a political standpoint, uh, hoping that over the next three years he could regain that by refashioning the Cold War. Um, I mean, it's really the same argument I think you get with Johnson, right? If he had just ended it after he was elected, he would have paid a political price, but could he have overcome that? I think that would have been something... That's an interesting what if, I think, as well. That how many lives would have been saved if Nixon had basically agreed to the agreement in, that he got in 73 that... Could you have sort of accelerated the, the Yeah, the I think timeline? this is part of the problem, right, is that, um, again, one of the perspectives I think we can pull out for today is, is how much should credibility and prestige drive U.S. grand strategy? And I think part of the problem that you've got with why this one what if wasn't followed was because of this idea of we, we've, we've got a... You know, to, to coin Kissinger's phrase, we, we, we have to leave as a matter of policy, not as a matter of collapse. Um, and a lot of that is being driven by the sense of credibility and prestige. Mm -hmm. And I still, th I still think we're struggling with that, of how, how much should credibility be part of our U.S. grand strategy decision-making process? And this is, I mean, this is maybe where the historians can read some political scientists who are talking about these questions right. all the time. And I think more and more and more they're saying, actually, credibility doesn't, this is not a thing that great powers actually have to 
have to worry about that great powers can leave without suffering tremendous and i think it's one of the key themes from the american side for almost all the way through right mm-hmm. the credibility and prestige keep coming up over and over yeah. and this over is again. from the very earliest yeah, yeah, yeah. strategic level right. conversations about about mm-hmm. vietnam and i think when when i think about how we teach the vietnam war and how i taught it to cadets and to, to others this question of credibility comes up over and over and over and we're left with the question well what were the consequences of of the war are there are there huge credibility costs for the u.s post-Vietnam what are the what are the costs for the U.S. of losing the war and it's a it's a sort of uncomfortable conversation in in some ways because the answer might be not not at all all that much Um, and that's a that's a hard lesson when you've got 58,000 Americans killed when you have many more wounded when you have a couple million Vietnamese lives destroyed that's a that's a really heavy price for not a lot of strategic effect. Um, yeah. I feel like that's the argument of my partner's book, uh, The Cold War's <laughs> Killing Fields. <laughs> yeah. So I think this, this leaves us with some, some really interesting questions, both about the history of the Vietnam War, but also about how we understand the history of the Vietnam War within the larger American story, within the larger global story, uh, certainly within the Vietnamese story, um, the American War it, it, it looms large. There's no, there's no way it, it can't. And at the same time, we've got lots still to figure out. So if you're looking for dissertation topics, if you're looking for uh, book topics, there's plenty, plenty of ground, I think, still to be, still to be covered. So I'd like to thank uh, Greg, Bob, and Hang for joining me for this conversation today. It's been, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. You could subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.